Section 6 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan Mackenzie. There is a common notion generally prevalent, save among those who are afflicted with it, that deafness brings silence. Would that it did. Sometimes, of course, the deaf do live in a soundless world, or at all events in a world of reduced sound. But in most cases of acquired deafness, the patient lives amidst noise, for along with the inability to hear external sounds clearly, there is combined an abnormal amount of subjective sound, that is to say, of noises generated in the ears by the disease which is causing the deafness. This we call tinnitus aureum, or briefly, tinnitus. This subjective noise is, as a rule, continuous and incessant, peeling on through the night as well as through the day. Its intensity as well as its character varies in different people. In some patients, it is merely a faint and distant blowing sound, so slight as to be audible only in silence and when the attention is specially directed to it. In others, again, it is hard and ringing, a glittering ribbon of metallic sound, in a third variety, the noise is composite in character, whistling, throbbing, and at times rising to a roar or a crash, loud enough to be heard even above the noise of the street traffic. It is often one of the sorest burdens of deafness, this everlasting tinnitus, and as might be expected, it is the irregular variable composite variety which gives rise to most distress. Indeed, in irritable or neurasthenic people, it may induce an amount of strain sufficient to threaten the reason, a threat which, unfortunately, is sometimes realized. Tinnitus has been known to lead to suicide. To show the extremities to which severe tinnitus occasionally drives a patient, the following case which came under my own observation may be cited. A lady of unusual culture and intelligence had suffered from noises in the ears for many years. It was a composite tinnitus, that is to say it was made up not of one sound only, but a mixture of several different noises, blowing, pulsating, and singing. An unearthly concatenation of row which was so disturbing as to render sleep impossible save when the noises of the outer world were loud enough to drown the internal din. Within hearing of street traffic, the patient could sleep. In the stillness, the noises in her own head kept her awake. So, being an ingenious person, she had an artificial noise machine constructed consisting of an electrically driven paddle wheel, the floats of which, churning and splashing in water by her bedside, made enough noise to enable her to sleep. Unfortunately, tinnitus of this very severe character is very seldom remediable. Occasionally, it may be cured by an operation which destroys the sense of hearing altogether. Occasionally, the operation fails. We hasten to add, however, that tinnitus of this devastating character is one of the rarities of medicine. The vast majority of patients soon learn to endure it with resignation, and even to treat it with humor, like the polite old gentleman who once astonished a fellow traveler in a railway train with the strange remark, I hope, sir, that the noise in my ears is not disturbing to you. People get used to tinnitus as the miller gets used to the clatter of his machinery, as we ourselves get used to street rumbles of the ordinary kind, and as suffering women get used to pain and sorrow. It is
it is well that the brain has the power of thus closing the door upon unpleasant sensations. Otherwise, life would soon become intolerable. In point of fact, it is upon the integrity of this door that the tone and color of the mind depend. Conceit, wine, and general paralysis of the insane bang, bar, and bolt it. We are then optimists, but let the pressure on the outside become strong enough to burst it open. We then become pessimistic. In the healthy mind, the door stands ajar, ready to be closed tight or opened wide, according to our desires and necessities. And it is only when the mental resistance is low, as when the sufferer is tired out, or when he is of the nervous build and constitution to begin with, that troubles such as tinnitus, bodily pain, an uneasy conscience, and so forth, thrust their way into the mind and insist upon a permanent residence. Then we suffer from the idea fix, the obsession, the worry. The question now arises whether the continual battering of the nerve centers by noise, whether subjective or objective, is or is not always harmful. According to some authorities, when once a painful stimulus has been received, it is passed on to the nervous system, and although its entrance to consciousness may be denied, it cannot be altogether annihilated. All that the nerve centers can do is to sidetrack the impression. The stream of painful sensations cannot be entirely blocked. It can only be diverted into other subsidiary channels where its effects will be found if they are sought for. I am bound to say, however, that in my humble opinion this view is not altogether borne out by fact. There is evidence, I believe, to show that the nervous system can actually so dampen and stifle an afferent impulse, probably by scattering its effects broadcast, so as to destroy it utterly for all practical purposes, thus rendering it harmless. But that this may occur, the impulse must not be too intense or too prolonged and the brain must not be enfeebled by tiredness or disease, or hypersensitive by birth or training. Unfortunately, however, as we are about to see, those adverse conditions are rather common nowadays, particularly among city dwellers. Now, what tinnitus is to a deaf patient, the noises of civilization are to the city dweller. The modern city is suffering from tinnitus, as incessant, as persistent, as distracting as that symptom can be at its worst. And this in an age when comfort and refinement in other directions have so sensitized the nervous system that it reacts to stimuli in a manner unknown in bygone days. The modern mind is a delicate instrument, the needle indicator of which trembles and oscillates to the finest currents of thought and feeling. By culture and education, we have acquired the sensibility of the artist or poet, and yet we continue to expose this poised and fragile instrument to the buffeting of a steam hammer, to the shriek of a locomotive. But I may not seem to exaggerate with regard to the sensitiveness of the town-bred Englishman. Let me remind the reader of the stolid bumpkin. What is that stolidity but a heaviness of mind, a tardiness of response to stimuli, a prolongation of the reaction period? to use the physiological expression. Such stolidity, although frequently food for easy jesting and light laughter, is not without many advantages, particularly in a city of din. 
It supplies to the mind armor of proof from which all but the shrewdest of fate's arrows fall blunted, and within which its workings go on unimpeded by the clamor without. No ordinary distraction avails to divert such a man from his set course, and although he necessarily must remain shut in from much of the fascination of the outer world, he is also barricaded against the many minor pricks that pain and annoy the irritable. Indeed, just as the city-dweller in England thus at once admires and despises his country cousin, so curiously enough do the Germans, the French, and the Americans regard the English as a nation. Among our many puzzling characteristics, one is to them clear and comprehensible, and that is the quality of the countryman, of the heavy, stolid, slow-footed, sluggish-minded clodhopper. And it is just this blind and deaf stolidity or stupidity in the Englishman of passing days and generations, which has earned him, the goddamn Rospith Englishman, the shafts of ridicule of the clever of all nations, from Voltaire to Bernard Shaw. Why, then, trouble about the effects of din upon this tortoise of the mind, this numbskull bait of the wits, too stupid even for ridicule to arouse? Surely he must be callous to the noises he himself has filled the world with. Then why not let him be and turn our energies towards some more necessary crusade? Simply because the clodhopper, the numbskull, the pachyderm, the tortoise, is becoming sensitive, maybe under the very stress of the conditions he himself has created. His monster has turned upon him, and laying sundry sledgehammer wax upon his carapace, is breaking through upon the delicate animal ensconced within it. Wherefore I wield my pen in praise of quiet, and demand that the unnecessary noises of the world shall cease, so that all of us, stolid and sensitive alike, may feel and see and hear and live within the bounds of moderation. Moderation, in sooth, is my theme. If excess in well-doing is but a shortcut to hell, as the Nicomachean ethics suggest, if it is wrong to be drunken, shameful to be a glutton, dangerous to throw the reins loose upon the neck of the fiery steed passion, surely it is equally a sin, from the point of view of scientific morality, to expose hearing to an excess of sound. I cannot find a good word to say about noise, and that is a fact. End of section 6